Thanks, friends, for listening to Nonprofit Lowdown. If you like Nonprofit Lowdown, you will love my free weekly newsletter with resources, fundraising inspiration, and cute dog photos. Did I mention the cute dog photos? Sign up at RiaWong.com. That's R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Ria Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Ria Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Cindy Wagman, who is the president and CEO of The Good Partnership, and she is located in our friendly neighbor to the north, the Great White North, Canada, my second home. And today, we're talking about neuroscience and the brain and fundraising. So, welcome, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. So before we jump into this incredibly deliciously nerdy topic of neuroscience, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? And in fact, you have a book, so you can tell us about that too. Yeah. So I always like to introduce myself as one of the few people who actually deliberately chose to go into fundraising as a career. (laughs) So when I was in university, I met a few people who were professional fundraisers and I was like, oh, I want to do that. And so this has been my whole life. My whole experience in my career has been fundraising. And I started consulting about six and a half years ago. And I knew I wanted to work with small organizations. I've been in very small and very, very large organizations. And the way we teach fundraising to small organizations has always just been like, copy the big ones. And that doesn't work. And so over time, I've started to try and unpack why. And one of the biggest sort of aha moments for me was around mindset and neuroscience. And so I wrote a book called Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul. And that brings us to the conversation today. Okay, so many things to unpack there because I actually totally agree with you. I love working with smaller nonprofits because I think it's just the problems are more interesting and the ability to see the impact is so much more interesting. But tell me why you find small nonprofits to be what you prefer. And when you say small, can you give us a ballpark? Like, what do you mean Mm -hmm. when you say small? So small, I would say in some ways is a mindset, especially in Canada, we have a lot of organizations that are small, but have a lot of government funding. And so I never like to look at the revenue or overall budget as the size because there are organizations, one, $2 million organizations that have zero fundraising program. So as a fundraiser, I always look at or define small as what their fundraising program is like. And usually it's, they don't have any dedicated fundraising staff. Maybe they have one, maybe they have one plus a database coordinator To me, under five in your fundraising department, I would say is like small, medium. So usually it's that it's the people who are responsible for fundraising usually have a lot of responsibilities. They're generalists and not specialists. That was half your question. Why small nonprofits? (laughs) So for me, part of it is just alignment with my own personal values around social justice and impact and change. And I've always felt that the organizations on the front line of those really exciting, important, 
big scary problem uh, or challenge organizations. They're the small ones. Like I'm not super fired up with hospitals and universities and it was a very personal decision, but I've always found a real connection to the work. And as I said, I think their needs are very different and underserved. I 100% agree with you. So we can delve into that another time, but let's talk about, before we get into the neuroscience piece, cause that's going to be a lot. <laughs> Tell me why you think that people are reluctant to fundraise, hence the title of your book. I have my opinions, but I'd be curious, why do you think people are reluctant to fundraise? Yeah, well, and it actually ties into the neuroscience piece because when we look at how our brains work, they make decisions in like the split of a second. Our brains are designed to build shortcuts as we go through the world and preserve energy and also our well-being. And so if you look at that process and how different repetition to beliefs and experiences create those shortcuts in our brains, when we look at what we think of as fundraising in the dominant narratives in our society, it's not good. <laughs> it's not aligned with a lot of our values or what we think about and our missions. And so, and there's more and more dialogue around this these days around like some of the harmful practices of fundraising, but it can be anything like we see repetitively the gifts that are celebrated in society are million, $10 million type gifts. And that feels completely unattainable for us. And so we think, well, I can never do this. And as soon as we think we're not going to be good at something, our brains actually go into protective mode and they prevent us from doing those things that would cause us harm. And so when we look at our narratives in society around money and what we think about who has money, who has money to give. Again, they're often very harmful stereotypes, but they've become so prevalent that they feel like truth. And then there's also these sort of myths or again, these stories that we hear over and over again, where fundraising feels like begging or that we're asking someone to just do us a favor and coerce them into giving because we haven't had the experience of connecting with people who experience giving as joyful, as meaningful, and as a way to connect with meaningful causes to them. So we have all these experiences as we grow up and grow up in our sector, how we think about the value of our work as a sector or as people in the sector, all of these things sort of build to make us feel really uncomfortable around fundraising. Cindy, you said so much I want to unpack. So I think number one, you said our personal relationships with money and the stories that we absorb about money. What I find in my work is that a lot of people, both either in their family upbringing or in the culture of nonprofit, there's a real scarcity mindset around there's not enough, there's never going to be enough. And if we get money, we're going to have to scrape for it and hustle for it and it's going to be hard. And then the other piece is the words that we use. Well, I'm going to go in there and twist some arms. I'm going to beg for some money. I'm going to ask people to do me a favor. And so it already places us in a position of being a supplicant, being an inferior. And then the third piece, I think, has a lot to do with the ways in which we view wealthy people in our society. Mm. 
one of my favorite shows online right now is Succession, which is like... Oh, I'm watching that. Oh, it's so good. But I think it it's like so reinforces good. every bad negative stereotype that we have about wealthy people. And the truth is like there are a lot of wealthy people out there who are like perfectly lovely, normal people. Exactly. And they connect with their cause and they want to do, do good in the world. So yes, 100%. I can't tell you my experience of working in organizations, sitting around board tables. And I know this is very common for people where someone will say, okay, we need to get in front of Oprah, Ellen DeGeneres, Warren Buffett. We think of wealth as ultra rich or like Bezos, all these sort of Elon Musk, all of that. And we think of philanthropy as that. And I actually wrote a thesis on this like almost 20 years ago, where there are people who have money who are aligned with your mission, but then there's also people who we don't think of as wealthy, who can still financially support your mission. And we need to sort of work on both of those levels and not just think of philanthropy as like the size of your check, but the act of giving, the act of investing in the world that you want to create and live in and be part of. Yeah, I always think about the root of philanthropy, which is the love of mankind. So it's a way of being not necessarily in act or capital P philanthropy. Yeah. And so many of us come from backgrounds and cultures where that idea of like true philanthropy, which is just caring for your community and supporting those around you, like that's really built into a lot of our backgrounds. I've had this conversation with members of the Black community. I'm Jewish. It's very much part of my understanding of community uh, as we think of it. And it's been kind of distorted and twisted through capitalism, this sort of ultra-rich colonialism. Like we can look at all the isms as sort of imprinting on what we now think of as philanthropy, but at the root of it, all of us, and studies have shown, like, doesn't matter what your income is, people who have less wealth and less income actually give more as a percentage of their income to charity than people who are ultra rich. And so it's in us to give. It's sort of part of our nature and communities. And that's been eroded a little bit, but I think that there's so much value in revisiting that and looking at how we build opportunity for everyone to be part of, again, like I think it's creating the world we want to live in. And that means investing financially. So let's talk about neuroscience for a second, because I think a lot about, maybe it's not neuroscience per se, but Maslow's hierarchy of need. And after, you know, basic human needs, you know, food, shelters, et cetera, we have this very strong need as human beings to belong. And mm -hmm. I think part of the reluctance I've seen with fundraising is the fear of rejection. Like if I ask my friends, community, family members to support a cause I love, not only will they say no, but they will then reject me and I will not get to be in the community, in the club, because I've done this thing that is somehow against, somehow offensive. Talk mm -hmm. to me about, does that fit into your theory of neuroscience and mm -hmm. philanthropy? Absolutely. So I mentioned the brain creates these shortcuts. It sort of makes decisions really quickly for us. There's patterns to those shortcuts. So there's, and actually I have like a chart behind me here. There's 
all these different patterns, I think they're also known as heuristics or biases. And so what happens is that we can actually identify why or like some patterns behind these shortcuts. And one of them actually is around belonging and social proof. And we hear about that from a fundraising perspective, when we think of donors and needing social proof to encourage people to give, but fundamentally one of the patterns that the shortcuts in our brains make is like, we want to belong. We want other people to validate our existence and our experience. And so our brains overemphasize negative things. And so we tend to sort of those two in combination where it's like negative experiences we experience as way worse than they actually are. And that coupled with our need to fit in and belong and for social approval makes it really scared to be rejected. That's very common. Okay. So we know the way human lizard brains work and it was evolved over millions of years in order for us to survive as a species. What do we do about it? Because it seems like there are these hardwired things in our brain that may no longer serve us, particularly as we're doing something like fundraising. Yeah. I don't think we can necessarily change the patterns or the heuristics that our brain makes, but we can leverage our understanding of them and our understanding of how those shortcuts are made. So we can understand that whatever the shortcut is in our brain it got there from repetition. And so my two favorite examples, one is like when you're going to a new job and you're driving or biking or whatever your route is going. And the first time you travel down that road, you're very aware of your surroundings. Your brain is working extra hard to observe the signs, I remember back in the day, it was MapQuest. Now it's your GPS. And so the first time we experience something, our brains are taking in all this information. Once we do that for about two months, we shift into autopilot. And so we're listening to our favorite podcast like this one or audiobook, or I like to sing along to music when I'm driving. But our brains are really looking at that point for the things that don't fit with what we're expecting. And that's at a point where that shortcut is now well-defined. And I've experienced this where I've had a meeting that's close to the office and I'll sort of be driving and end up at the office because I was like not paying attention. I was on autopilot and the same thing happens. So we know that that repetition creates those shortcuts and actually the more we create the ones that we want, the old ones will die off. Like the neurons will actually like separate that shortcut will cease to exist. And so ultimately it's simple, but hard in the sense that it's simple. We need to create more productive habits that rewire our brains to change those narratives, but habits are hard (laughs) as someone who's always struggled with like not overeating sugar, which I like have very bad habits around health or any habit that we try and do. It's really hard because our brains pull us back to our old way, pull us to that shortcut. So fundamentally, we have to identify, first of all, what are those shortcuts for us? What are the stories and the narratives that we have running through our brain that keep us doing the things that we're doing? And once we understand that, we can start to identify ways to change that. And then we have to practice. 
And there's different ways to practice. Sometimes it's through visualization and journaling, which is also science fact. Our brains can't tell the difference between experiencing something and just thinking about experiencing that. And so we can do mindfulness and things like that. And then also one of my favorite things is connecting with your donors, get to know them, connect with them, understand why they give, start to shift the narrative that it's a one-way relationship by just engaging with your supporters. So there's lots of different ways, but ultimately it comes down to habits. It's so funny. I was reading a New York Times article about why it is that you don't listen to your partner anymore. And it's because of familiarity. Like your brain fills in all the information that you think you already know because you're with this person, you live with this person. Like, what, what could they possibly say that I don't know already? And then you get the phenomenon of like, you never listen to me. It's like, well, because mm -hmm. my brain already filled in. The neural pathways are created already. I already know what you're going to say. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that one. For me, one of the interesting things or experiences, especially over the last two years, I have two kids, both of ages where they're sort of learning to read and having them home during the first, like more than half of the pandemic, watching them learn how to read. We do that with language too. So we look at words like I, when I type, I always misspell the. H-T-E is like how it 90% of the time ends up because I'm typing fast. But any of us can look at that and know it's the. But my seven-year-old doesn't. He looks at it and he's like, like it's these repetition things or, or our ability to predict what the meaning is before we actually know the meaning. So it's been very interesting watching them learn how to read. But yeah, we definitely predict a lot of what people mean, what their behavior is. We jump to conclusions and I definitely do that with my spouse as well. So let's talk about how to even know, because I think sometimes we think a thing so much that we just think it's reality. We don't even know that it's a story that we're telling. We just say like, well, that's just the way it is. Like, that's just the facts of it. How do we get into our own brains and discern what are facts versus what are just stories that I've been repeating to myself so often that I believe it's a fact? In some ways, is there even such a thing as a fact? I think that for the most part, we're all living our lives through these stories. So the first question to identify what stories are holding you back or preventing you from getting to where you're going is to identify where you are now and where you want to go. And often I'll do this as an exercise of if I wrote you a check today for $100,000 or a million dollars for your organization, what would you do with that? And you can't say hire a fundraiser because everyone says that because they don't want to fundraise. But it, it's okay. That's where we're going. What's preventing us from getting there? And there are definitely patterns or similar stories I hear from organizations. So one might be, we don't know anyone who can give. And to me, again, once we can identify like that's our barrier, we can start to unpack the story behind that. What do you mean you don't know anyone who can give? What does giving mean for you in this situation? And often they're like, oh, I don't know anyone who has like $10,000 to write us a check. Okay, that's a specific story around giving that's not serving you anymore. So how do we then unpack that and sort of reverse engineer? Okay, there's a whole sequence of events that happens 
so we have the circumstance that triggers sort of our beliefs, which also triggers feelings, and then we act or don't act, which leads to our results. So we need to sort of unpack that, okay, the action or that area of action might be, well, we don't know who to ask. So let's unpack that. What are the feelings and beliefs around that? And then we can rewrite that narrative. Another big one came up today. We need to focus on corporate. I hear that a lot from organizations, especially small ones. Okay, why? And there's so much behind this. Like This one could be a whole podcast, but we need to focus on corporate. Well, why? Okay, maybe we just don't feel comfortable asking people for money and it feels safer to ask a company. They have money. We have shareholders and obligations to them. So we start to unpack what's underneath that belief that you have. And then we can see, okay, how do we need to change that? The corporate one as well, there's so much about pitching. Like we, I had this conversation. Oh my God, Cindy, you and I are like a two woman mission to eradicate pitching because it drives me crazy. Pitching, uh, please continue. It doesn't work and it's so problematic. And so, but again, we've been told these stories that like we have one shot. And again, it's based on this narrative that people don't want to give. So we have to like go in hard and like convince them really quickly. That's actually not at all, at least not my experience with any corporate major gift, any type of fundraising. It's not about pitching. It's not a one-way conversation. We have to engage with our supporters and understand why they would say yes so that we can figure out what that right ask is. And my experience, asks are definitely not one conversation. And so we can start to say, okay, why are we fixated on this idea of pitching? One is it's this belief that, again, people don't inherently want to give. So we have to like really make a solid case. Or it could be that people don't want to give us their time. People are busy. We don't want to bother them. And a lot of that is just about our own feelings. Mm -hmm. And again, that's this this idea that in our sector, we're less than the for-profit world. We are not as valid. People don't want to hear from us. We see this with emails. Like I can't send more than one email a day or I can't send more than one email a month. Meanwhile, I get emails from like J Crew and all these other companies like twice a day, every day. People want to hear from us. We're not less than, and if they don't want to hear from us, then they're not the right people for your organization. As you're talking, I actually have a little bit of a different take on it, which is I think the idea of pitching is not necessarily coming from a less than. I think it's a reaction to trying to replicate the for-profit okay. world, like the yeah. VC pit. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I had someone else on my podcast who actually put people in an MRI, and when they talk about business, one part of their brain lines up. When they talk about philanthropy, it's a different part of their brain. And it's the same part of the brain that lights up when they talk about family. Mm. And so I think this idea of the pitch is rooted in tech and finance culture. But exactly your point, I've never closed a gift on the basis of a pitch. Like there's no magical combination of words that you can say that someone be like, you're right, let me write you a big check. It's about the relationship. It's about the connection. And I think we're so afraid to be vulnerable and we're so afraid to be personal with people. What's that about? 
First of all, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a hangover from this idea that we need to be more corporate or for profit. And we have so much to learn from that sector. And it's just not true. And I always talk about in fundraising, a similar sort of symptom of that is this idea that we need to be heavy on stats, that we need to bulk up on like how many people, how many this, what are the numbers? We always need numbers. And if we look at how the brain works, especially around their giving decisions, people make decisions based on their emotions. They look at data to reinforce or feel better that they made the right decision. And I love the story you told about the part of your brain that lights up because there's similar information around how we interpret stories. So when we hear stats or data, the part of our brain that lights up is the language part. But when we hear stories, our brain experiences those stories as if we are in it. And we've all sat in a movie where our heart goes up and down and we feel it in our stomach. That happens when we leverage stories really well. And so we need to understand that like stories are actually a really critical part of fundraising to connect people with the mission, make that emotional decision for them. And then the stats really just make them feel like they made the right decision. It sort of then goes to the brain to say, okay, verified. But the way we make decisions, the way we look at stats, interpret information is always with the lens of, I'm going to twist this truth to justify my decision. Like one stat might be great for someone and terrible for someone else. So, yeah. Yeah. My God, Cindy, you and I are like Vulcan mind melt here because I talk about this all the time. Think about your donors like you're on a date. Like when you mm -hmm. go on a first date, are you trying to hit them over the head with your CV? Like, look at me. I'm so impressive. I went to this school. This is my GPA. Here's my SAT score. You might. And that's probably the only date you'll get. Yeah. <laughs> and you're definitely not proposing. Oh, you're that... definitely not proposing after the first date. That's the other thing. And think about when you're on a good date, there's a back and forth. You're sharing stories about your childhood and about that funny time I went to Europe or whatever. It's all story-based because you're trying to get to know the other person and that person is sharing about themselves. That's what fundraising is. Exactly. I could not agree more. I've talked about fundraising as matchmaking very often in my work because it's so true. And also one of the things about that is matchmaking, dating, all of it is like finding the mutual spark. We need to understand that when we think of it that way, we can start to uncover that spark for your donors. Why do they care? What benefit do they get from giving? Because they feel good, as you said, with the part of your brain that lights up. That is an emotional response to giving that feels powerful and good. And so we have to understand why they're even at the table, what they get out of giving so that we can build on that and really understand that it really is a mutual win, a mutually beneficial proposition. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, which is value for value, because I think we think as nonprofits that we are taking and we're not giving, but we, we come with a tremendous amount of value. We deal in the business of good feelings. So you may be giving me a resource of money, but I am also giving you a resource of you fulfilling your vision of what you would like in the world. Value for value. Exactly. And there's, again, like, I just want to reinforce that it's not just the big donors and million dollar gifts. Like people feel good giving $10, $20. And we have to understand those donors as well. I think 
there's a lot of dialogue in, in the fundraising community right now around community versus donor. And I've always been a believer that your donors should also be your community. They should reflect your community. And so, yeah, not just focusing on like those handful of donors you may or may not have as a small organization. A lot of organizations don't have large donors or people who give large amounts. So this is true of every type of donor. It's true of corporate foundations, individuals, everything. I would also say too, like large donors start as small donors. So don't sleep on that. Cause I think the expectation that McKinsey is going to swoop down from the sky out of nowhere and drop a million dollar check on you. Okay. Sure. Like, yeah, obviously it happened for some people, but that's not the norm. This is not like a usual case study. Yeah. And it's not sustainable. Like that's not going to happen year after year. And as organizations, we need to build sustainability and predictability in our funding. We cannot just cross our fingers for that one grant for that one major gift. We have to really understand like, what are we building towards and yeah, how do we get there? One of the things that I wanted to add, and I think it might be valuable in this conversation is when you become aware of these narratives and these stories that you're telling yourself, think about a high level interrupt to interrupt your brain in that story. Cause otherwise you're just like meandering down this road. It could be anything from like a visual reminder. I mean, I had once when I, I forgot what I was trying to do, but I was trying to change a habit and I had a rubber band. And so every time I was conscious of thinking something, I had sort of snapped the rubber band, not enough to hurt, but enough to be like, oh yeah, okay. Like I'm just becoming conscious of the thing. Yeah, and that's CBT, which is like cognitive behavioral therapy used a lot by like social workers and psychiatrists. There's so many different tools. And I think part of it is us being mindful before we get into a situation. So understanding and taking a step back and saying, okay, like we have to do the work before we're in the moment because Otherwise, we just don't have the tools when we're in the moment. And then once we understand that, we can prepare for the moment. Things like visualization or setting intentions, like actually picturing what's going to happen. What does it look like? How do I want to feel in that situation will actually get you so much closer to that experience. And then there's an author, Brendan Bouchard, who I read in his book, he talks about release and set intentions. So sometimes when you catch yourself or you know you're about to go into a situation, just pausing and literally saying release out louder in your head if you can until you feel physically that release. And then you can just set your intentions and go into a situation. Another thing that I do with my kids, especially my one son who experiences, I would say more anxiety is we really practice breathing techniques. So there's different breathing techniques that can help shift what's going on in your body and in your brain and bring you back. And so with him, we do one where we <laughs> trace our fingers and we breathe in on the upward tracing and out downwards. And we do it five times for each finger and thumb. And I've witnessed it with him. And the more you practice, the more powerful it becomes where he's gone from like spiraling when he's upset, he spirals and gets further and further. I don't want to say out of control, but like down this path of feeling horrible. But when we focus on that breathing technique, he comes back so much faster and then is able to have a conversation 
or express himself. And the more he does it, the more effective it is each and every time he does it. So breathing is a very powerful way. Visualization is really powerful as well to like catch yourself in the moment. I also have one of those, I actually have like a bracelet that has a rubber band on it just to catch yourself in that moment and like kick your brain into gear. Breathing is really powerful as well for that. Actually, I just remembered what it was. I was trying to stop complaining. <laughs> I was like, Ooh, I complain I a lot. And so I, every time I complain, I kind of snapped. And then I also tried to switch the bracelet. And I was like, oh, I'm switching this a lot. I'm a complainer. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to add too, is I think people get very nervous in the act of asking. And so I really recommend, first of all, being very clear in your ask, because I'm sure you've seen this all the time. People screw up the ask all the time and they mm -hmm. think that they've asked for something. And the person hearing it was like, I don't actually know what you asked for. And then there's like this confusion in the middle, like, okay, this is super awkward. It's like screwing up a marriage proposal. Like, did you just ask me to marry you? Cause I'm confused. Cause there was no ring. I don't know what's going on. But then also to brainstorm 15 different responses and how you might respond to the ask. Because once you can practice and anticipate how the conversation might go, you feel less nervous about it. Yeah, 100% agree. One of the things that I teach about asking. So first of all, and again, I speak from a lens of working with small organizations where a lot of asks are not even in person. I understand for major gifts and most like in corporate partnerships and stuff like that. Yeah. You need to have those conversations in person, but I do want to just recognize that you don't have to ask every single donor to give face to face. So that's one thing. Like we're so afraid of this idea of the ask that it prevents us from even like asking in an email or mail. So still do those things. They're probably less scary. Also, I've seen larger organizations where they're preparing to ask someone like an annual donor, maybe upgrading them to a medium or major gift and they'll pull them from the annual ask, but it takes them like a year and a half to ask for the big gift. And then they lose that habit of that person giving to your organization. So that's just an aside. But what I teach within this idea of like major gift asking, first and foremost, I think of it as a yellow brick road and I call it like a road of mini yeses. So there's not one big ask. We have to look at these small opportunities to course correct or make sure we're on the same road as our donors or on the right path. And we talked about that at the beginning in terms of relationship building. So I always look for and sort of verify and get buy-in to like, are we on the right path? I always give an example, like a multi-million dollar gift that I was able to get for an organization I worked at. I started just with like, okay, can I get a meeting? Let's start with that. Yes. Okay. We got a meeting. Then we just had a conversation and in that conversation, and I'd done research and looked at the donor. I had prepared to talk about entrepreneurship. It was for a business school. So we're like, okay, he's an entrepreneur. He runs his own company. We think that this might be an ask for entrepreneurship, but I did my research, but I didn't assume. And so in those first conversations, that was the first yes I was looking for. Is this the right area? And in fact, it wasn't at all or even close. He was really interested in leadership. So that's my next yes. Okay, then can we get another meeting with the person who runs our leadership program? That's a yes. And so there's all these different yeses on the path to that ask. And my favorite one, hands down, is actually getting a yes to have 
a conversation for an ask. So I try and signal to say, okay, because we've built up this relationship. Donors don't like to be like sidelined and be like, oh my God, all of a sudden we've been talking about family and kids and now you want to ask me for a million dollars. So I'll usually say, I'd like to talk to you about supporting this program. Yes. So there's all these little yeses along that pathway. And now they're prepared to talk about money. You're less likely to chicken out or not make a clear ask. And then absolutely, I agree with your advice around looking at the different outcomes, thinking about how our own brain shows up for those different outcomes and how we can practice and prepare for that. But in my experience, if we're on that right path, very, very rarely you're getting a no it's usually like figuring out what that yes is together yeah i 100% agree and i say this a lot with wealthy people have more money than they have time so if they're willing to give you their time you're just negotiating on the gift yes and i get back to my dating analogy like the goal of dating is like do we want the same things? Are we seeing the world the same way? And to your point around, am I in the right ballpark? Like maybe you find out that your person really hates Italy and you find that out after you plan this big trip to Italy. Okay, well, that's good to know. <laughs> like they don't want to go to Italy yeah. or I plan this big champagne dinner and they don't drink champagne. Okay, good. Now I know. But it's all about kind of like honing in on do we want the same things? Do we see the world the same way? Are we ready to make a commitment? Yeah. And that process will also give you prolonged commitment because that's also really important. We don't want to be chasing new money year after year. We want to be building those relationships so that, and know that we're on the right path because that path continues after the ask. And that's also, I think, really important. To oh my God. Can we just talk about that for a second? I talk about this all the time. I do board work and I'm like, okay, how many of you guys are married? Okay. So do you stop paying attention to your spouse after you get married? Like, or maybe you take them out to <laughs> dinner once a year. Do you do that? They're like, no. I'm like, why not? You sealed the deal. They're like, because it's a relationship that continues to grow. And I was like, exactly, exactly. I also like to say, I, I'm not a one night stand kind of a girl. I'm in it to get married. Like I'm in it for commitment people. <laughs> exactly. And I can't tell you how much, you know, I don't have to tell you how much burnout our sector experiences and the more we can focus on long-term support from our donors, it's less work. We know that is one thing in the business world that I think we need to get better at. Like they know that the cost to acquire a customer is way higher than the cost to keep a customer. And that actually is true of owners as well. And so oh, if yes. you invest in your systems and stewardship, in fact, I always say start with that because if you don't, you're wasting a lot of time on quick wins instead of longevity. And that's yeah, not- you, You're pouring out. water into a leaky bucket, y'all. As a sector, our donor retention is like 45%. It's terrible. And I'm not surprised why. Like I'm a donor myself. Most of the charities I donate to are terrible at stewardship. I get a letter once a year asking me for money, but nothing else the whole year telling me like, what did you do with my money? All right. Kate, do you want to jump in here? You're asking a question about resources to learn more. And I'm just wondering if you have specifics about the more. What more Hi. are you looking for? Hi, Cindy. Hi, Ria. Thanks for this. This has been so interesting. And I have really related to the whole, the idea of fundraising being like dating. And I thought that mm -hmm. was 
such a good point about how when you go on a first date, you don't like shoot off statistics at each other. And also so real and true because you feel so compelled to do stuff like that. And the area where I live is very tech heavy and everybody is focused so much on their elevator pitches and all of those things you're speaking about really resonated deeply. But my question about resources, thinking more about what you were mentioning about heuristics, biases, and is there something that, because that's sort of a rabbit hole you can fall into when you start looking for things like that, is there something that you really found simplified those thoughts for you or mm-hmm. your learning? Yeah, so I'll give you a few. One, a woman named Dr. Shannon Irvin, I really resonate with how she teaches this. There's also, that's one, James Clear talks his book, Atomic Habits. I'm like, Cindy, are you around the same person? This is so weird. Yeah, well, that's a different conversation, but I definitely think so. So I love James Clear. So, so good. Shannon Irvine, as I said, I first came into learning about this when I was doing my MBA at a business school here in Toronto and started understanding heuristics from this perspective of, I guess it's like a thought school of thought called integrative thinking, which really resonated for me. So Roger Martin is an author. He was the dean of the school at the time who's written a lot about that, which is understanding like around decision-making, especially within business or strategy, uncovering a lot of the mental models we show up with and all that. So those are some of my favorite resources. And I see uh, Reyes put a bunch of other ones in here, which That's is so, helpful. so cool. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. And I'll make sure for the podcast listeners to put all of these recommendations in the show notes. Kate, are you in California? I'm assuming you said oh, tech. No, I am in what commonly referred to by the folks who live here as the Silicon Valley of the North. I live in Waterloo, Ontario. Ah, got it. Down the road uh, from me. I'm in Toronto. So. It's a funny place to be as a small nonprofit because it's exactly that trap of being lost within pitches everywhere. And a lot of the philanthropy that goes around catches that fever too of competitors having this need to pitch to each other and to the potential donors. And it can be really quite um, intimidating. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Kate, let me just add something here because I'm actually doing some fundraising in, in Silicon Valley for a client. And what's interesting is like the highest echelon of tech folks are actually the ones who are most likely to engage in conversations about meaning and purpose. And like, they're mm-hmm. very in like the Jack Dorsey's of the world or the Elon Musk's or the Reid Hoffman's, like they're really asking these big questions of mm-hmm. like, what is my purpose on this planet other than to make a lot of money. And so I think bringing that into the conversation will be actually a very welcome break from talking about code and algorithms also I personally feel a little bit of importance between having that that line between strategy and altruism right? it needs people need that proof that you're capable with all those really cool statistics and data that you would never do on the first date but they those are important as is storytelling and as is the impact mm-hmm. a donor would make and i love the idea of people being more hungry for the meaning than yeah. And if you think about it, like those same stats, you can show to two different people and they will interpret it completely differently based on the decisions they've already made around their emotions. But one book I also wanted to recommend, it's called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. 
And it's for businesses and he's a, they have a podcast and they talk about this sort of framework that they have with donors and fundraising as well on a couple episodes in the podcast. But the idea is like, we're so focused on the stories of our organization, the impact stories that we forget that our donors have their own stories as well. And he frames it like from a business perspective as like, the customer is the hero, the company is the guide. And we've talked, there's lots of thought leadership in our sector around that from a fundraising perspective, but his framework we've found really helpful in working with clients through that to sort of unpack what that story is that your donor, like how do they see themselves in solving these problems? And the more you understand and build that story of your donor, the easier it is to connect or find the right way to connect with them. Uh And as a fun fact, and you're hearing it here first, a good friend of mine with a lot of experience in the nonprofit sector just became a certified story brand coach. Mm. And I think we're gonna do a workshop in Toronto or in the GTA in the summer. So, Ooh. Cindy, keep me posted. Yeah, I am a Donald Middleton Miller fan. I actually went through the uh, story brand framework. Oh, I'm so jealous. We've hired, like, my company has hired uh, story brand guides. I think it's such a great framework and we use a mm-hmm. lot with our clients. So, yeah, I'm putting it out there. We're going to do a day where organizations can come and get their, their like, one-liner and their story brand framework. So, fun. All right. Cindy, this has been a lot of fun. Where can folks find you on the interwebs? Yeah, so thegoodpartnership.com is our website. And if you're interested in the book, you can find it on our website or raiseitbook.com or you can get it if you want it fast, you can go through Amazon. But if you want to support small businesses, get it directly from us. And yeah, connect with us on social, hear me talk about this a lot. And it just brings me joy to have it resonate with other people. So feel free to reach out and connect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cindy. Thanks to everyone. Happy fundraising, everyone. Take care.